Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Please turn with me, if you would, to the letter of 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. It's on page 1022 in the Bibles in the seats in front of you. 1 John chapter 3. By way of reminder, at the beginning of every new year, we do a few of the same kinds of sermons every year. We do one on Epiphany or the revelation that Jesus is the Son of God. That was the first in January last week. We usually do one about life, pro-life against abortion. That was last week, and then this week is our annual State of the Church sermon. Now, I usually plan sermons out loosely six months or so in advance. So I planned what I was going to be preaching from beginning of the new year through the middle of summer, sometime November, December. So as I was thinking about the State of the Church address and what we wanted, I, I thought, I want to just urge us to continue to love each other. And First John is a good place to do that, so that's what I picked. And then when I was preparing for the sermon this week, I looked back at last year's sermon calendar and discovered that I had picked the same exact book and the same exact theme for last year's annual State of the Church address. And, you know, I thought, well, let's do it. And here's why. It's just good to be reminded of the main thing. Sometimes within a family, your own family, you can love them and do lots of very good, loving, say good, loving things, but you can also treat them much more poorly than you treat anybody else in the world. Siblings say and do things to each other that they would never do to another human being anywhere. They'd be embarrassed and ashamed. Spouses can do that to each other, parents to their children, children to their parents. And why do we do that? Well, we just presume on their love. We make a big presumption that they will take it and bear that weight and uh, never reject you. And so we just presume on them. And it's really awful, isn't it? Those should be the people that we're most careful to restrain our words and most careful to restrain our deeds, and we would rather say and do things to people outside of our family than we would ever do to people within our own families. And the same can be true within the church family. Maybe a way to think about our church right now is, it's going well, praise God. When I'm with other pastors, we always ask each other, how's the church going? And my answer over the last... Several years has been, it's going really well. (laughs) Uh, Praise God. And by that I mean, we're not dealing with what we often see in the Bible as far as factions and infighting and petty rivalries and jealousies and all that kind of political crud that everybody hates and it just wears you out. We're dealing with, as let's say pastors and elders, we're dealing with people's lives and their sins and their struggles and sorrows, what we should be dealing with. And it's a real joy to tell you the truth. 
and we have new people coming regularly, and we have a whole bunch of children and young children and babies, and we have a great mix of ages. We have people who have been here for 30 years, and people who have been here for three months, and they are getting to know each other. It's been a delight to be a part of our church over the past several years. And so by God's grace, we're being blessed. You all know that the Christian life is a war. And let's say over the past several years, we've won some battles. It's been really good. But sometimes when you're winning, you neglect to remember that the enemy is ticked. And they're getting ready to fight all the harder. And so the generals and sergeants and so on got to keep reminding their victorious army that there's another battle coming. And the enemy is going to fight all the harder. And what we fight with is the love of God for each other. Or maybe I officiated a basketball game this week and one of the teams was Wausau Newman. They went to the state championship last year. They had a really good team. This year they have one win. Now that's partly because they graduated all their scoring and they started four sophomores, but it's also partly because they got a little big for their britches. You know, they, they think they're all that. They're coasting. They're not working as hard with such attention to detail. We don't, we have to be careful not to be like that, to become complacent. And so, This sermon is aimed at us as a church to rejoice in God for the good gifts of His blessings over this last year and to remind us that we should not let our love grow cold for each other. So that's what we're aiming at. Kids, in this text, I'm going to point out three surprises. We would think that it would say one thing, but it says another. And you have the little sermon note thing, so write those three surprises down and show me afterwards. I'd love to see them. I thought about saying, if you have all three, Terry Freeze will have a piece of candy for you. But he doesn't. But I also let Terry Freeze, if you're ever with him around, with grandchildren and the grandparent, he'll often say that grandpa promises to go get you ice cream after this. So what's good for the goose is good for the gander, fella. So Terry will immediately depart after the service and run to Crick Trip and get candy. Or maybe Sean or one of the other elders, I don't know. Okay, uh, let's read. I'm going to read all of chapter 3 here. And so if you could give me your attention for uh, 24 verses. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. Amen. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we will see, we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as He is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another in Him as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God, and God in Him. And by this, we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Let's pray. Father, look on us now. Teach us to not forget Your law. Father, we come to You pleading the blood of Your Son. Give us life now according to Your promise. Salvation is far from the loveless, far from the wicked. They do not love You nor Your statutes, but great is Your mercy, O God. Give us life according to Your Word. Teach us to look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Consider how we love your precepts and give us life according to your steadfast love. And so we ask now that we would see that the sum of your word is truth and that every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Amen. Let me read that again. This is Psalm. I I, I typically pray from a section of Psalm 119 after I read Scripture before the sermon. That's Psalm 119, 153 to 160. Here's what it says. I look at, fa- at the faithless with disgust. Did you know that's in the Bible? Last week's sermon was one of those that uh, afterwards I got a lot of encouragement. Thank yous and how encouraging it was and how helpful. And then I got some that were very honestly kind and thoughtful and critical of maybe not using that word or not going so deep into that topic because children should have, or parents should have the option to talk about it with their children. And so I thought I'd just hit on a few of those things that I heard, and hopefully this will be helpful to you. Of course, we live in a culture that loves death. We do not love life. And so it is very important that the church speak very clearly see of God as the God of life. We'll see it in our text. 
see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. He is a God who gives us eternal life, adopts us, making us brand new into his family. And what I said last week is God does not contracept that love. He is a God who pours out his love and gives us new life. And so it was meant to challenge us, to be helpful to us, to get at our consciences that we might love life like God. And so one of the questions I got afterwards is, what are, aren't you taking the responsibility from the parents to talk to their children about those things? And, well, no, I don't think I did that. First of all, you see in Scripture that God's messengers prophets, apostles, pastors, speak often in Scripture directly to the children. Jesus did this. And so I do have to do that. I have to pastor your children just like I have to pastor you. We have to elder and care for your kids. Um, not without you, but hopefully with you. This is particularly important when your children get to what we call preteen teen Because wise parents do understand at that time that your kids are differentiating from you. They are, in in fact, distancing from you, trying to become their own person. And what is vital at that time uh, with the parents are other godly men and women who go towards them and speak to them. And hopefully a wise parent teaches children when they aren't as fond of listening to their parents at that time, to give their ear to other wise, godly people. And let that be. Two people. And one of the things that was interesting on Wednesday, I heard from two people, one who said, thank you for being very careful with your language and moderate. You chose your words carefully. I could tell that. And somebody who said, I wish you would have chosen your words more carefully. (laughs) Uh, it reminded me of an elder meeting. This is at my previous church like 12 years ago. At, at one elder meeting, I had one pastor tell me, you need to get out of the office more and be in people's homes. And one elder tell me, you're not in the office enough. And I'm sitting there thinking, did you not just hear what each other said? Anyways, I just take that to mean that was probably about right with the sermon when you get both of those. And uh, so I don't... Your kids should hear in the Bible stronger language than I used last Sunday because stronger language is in the Bible. And as parents read the Bible with their kids, they should be encountering words that make their kids go, Daddy, what does that mean? Mommy, what does that mean that he went into her? Because it's all over the Bible, right? Because you don't want your kids to be catechized or learning from their peers and their cousins and Disney, you want them to hear it here. What a better place to hear these things than here. So we want to be open to life as a church because as we see here, God is a God who gives life in His Son. God is a God who creates all life. And of course, one of the questions then is, as I mentioned in the sermon last week, does that mean we should have as many kids as possible? Or are we as a church or as pastors trying to determine how many children people have? I can tell you without any 
uh, I have never ever said to people, you need to have more kids. I probably should. Enough. Three isn't enough, or five isn't enough, or seven isn't enough. It isn't our job to determine how many kids people have. That is the couple's job before God and hopefully getting advice. But when one person asked me about that, one of the things that we always assume is that our motives are always pure. And a couple rarely remembers when they're considering whether they should have more children is that their hearts are deceitful above all else. They just think that it's their prerogative to no longer have any more children and that all their reasons for doing it are right and good and pure. And that's just not true. In our culture, we take it as more of a right to have less children than more children. Is that not what you see going around you? Now, for some, two may be good. Right? I don't know. But I think you should at least be thinking about it. Praying about it. Getting input from other people. Doubting your own motives. For some, eight might be gifts enough. God makes us different with different gifts. But I can say as a pastor, I rarely have had anybody ever say we had too many kids, and I've had many say, I wish we would have had more. Lastly, I will say, if you read the Bible with any kind of attentiveness to the sins that pastors commit, the Bible is constantly, constantly, constantly warning the pastors that their sin will hardly ever be in what they say but in what they refuse to say. Always. Think of Ezekiel and the, if you remember, the analogy of a city with a, uh, a wall around it and they place sentries on the wall to be looking for the enemy is coming. And God's saying, listen, when I, when I give you a warning for the people, like the enemy's coming, and you refuse to warn them, because you're afraid of what they'll think of you, and you're afraid that it'll cost you something, then if they perish, I'll require their lives at your hands. But if you warn them, and they refuse to listen, then that's on them. What is he saying? He's saying that God's pastors, those who are given to shepherd you, will almost always sin in refusing to give God's warnings and not saying what the Bible says, and not poking at the idols, the sins common in our church, in our lives that are the places where our culture is most at odds with biblical truth. And yet it... it, so, so I want, I want you to, Father, stuck in your head, please. Parents, this is often the same with us. Fathers, husbands, a lot of our sin will be in not saying what needs to be said. You not know, see this in the fathers in the Bible. Why did David's children go crazy with sin? Because he didn't discipline them. He didn't say Eli over and over and over again. And yet, people are so hyper-aware to try to hear what 
may have said too much. Like, I had a PG sermon and you thought it may be bordered on PG-13. Be much more aware that my sin is going to be in not saying what needs to be said than in saying too much. And see that in ourselves. Now, all that to say, I, I, I hope that was helpful, but um, I got so much encouragement. And one of the main encouragements I got was from people at, say, 25 to 40. I wish I would have heard something like that when I was 15. I wish I would have heard that consistently in my church. Or people saying, why don't we ever hear stuff like that in church anymore? And my explanation was, well, pastors don't, they, they fear you more than they fear God. They don't love you. Um, I heard from one family of, you know, they, they have a, a large amount of families and their, their own family and their church family, they don't go to church here, they heard the sermon on YouTube. They, all they do is get negative comments in their church and in their own family because of the number of the children they have. And that that was very, very helpful to their soul. And that's the kind of church family we want to have. Now, my fear is, though, that you who have one or two children and, you know, feel condemned by that, that's not the point. That, that it, as I said, God, that could be enough for you. That could be your fruitful multiply. But are you open to life? That's what we want to do. Okay, um, if there is more that needs to be talked about there, if you have questions about that, please know that I or another elder or pastor would be more than willing to talk to you about it. Um, the one thing I do want to caution you, let me use the basketball officiating. After a game, we officials often talk about the game. And sometimes, separate from an official who made a call, one of the other officials will go to the other official and say, what would you think about his call without him present? And that question never is insincere. It always means, I thought that call stunk, and I want to talk negatively about him without him present. And so sometimes, as we, you should discuss the sermon. Just be careful that when you ask the kind of question like, what did you think about the sermon? Where is that coming from? What do you actually mean there? And so I think it's much more helpful for you as you discuss to say, here's what was helpful for me in the sermon, and here's what I disagreed with. Just don't go fishing. Be careful there of your hearts. And you put a lot of pressure on other people when you ask that. And that's um, hard for them because they probably know that there's some criticism you have. And now you're putting them in a very awkward position. I think it's much better to go and say, hey, this is, I found A, B, and C helpful and D, E, and F unhelpful. Can we talk about that? That's good. Uh, and don't be under any illusion that I think that every sermon I preach is righteous. I know every sermon is full of sin. I need in my motives, in my words. And so I need... Jesus' blood as much as you do. That has nothing to do with this sermon. So, if you can make the transition with me, I'd appreciate it. You need a minute? Take a breath.
Kids, three surprises. Here's the first one. It'll come in a minute. We see right at the front of John chapter 3 this incredible love of God for us. It it's, uses the word see what kind of love the Father has given to us. This is addressing the consistent problem we have as Christians is to experience the forgiveness and the peace in our consciences that God is our Father because of Christ. Whereas so many Christians live as if they're always in doubt always having to earn or merit by their goodness, by their lack of sin, God's love, when instead it's freely given. And so the apostle is saying, listen, 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 listen. Just, it's there. It's it's a fact. He's a father who has adopted you in his son. It'll never be lost. It'll never be taken away. Just Chill out and look at it. Experience it. Taste it. Realize it. Feel it. Rejoice in it. He's trying to calm your doubts and fears again as to your acceptance with God. See what kind of love Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. And so we have this remarkable love from God who is love that isn't just data, but a a, a reality, a fatherly, loving, adopting relationship that we can experience, that we can live in light of, that can quiet our consciences and have peace with God. Because He has chosen and given you His fatherly, unbreakable love. And what we need as a Christian is just the faith to go, "Ah, thank you. Yes. So we have this great love right at the top. Now what would you expect is required as your response of faith to God's love. If God has so loved you, what would you think that John is going to say you must respond to his love with? Here's the first surprise. I would expect right after this, we would find in the rest of the chapter much exhortation, commands to love God. Right? See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should call his children. And so you must love him. Which is, of course, true, but that's not where he goes. He spends the rest of the chapter saying, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called His children. And the rest of the chapter is, so love one another. It's a bit of a surprise, I think. So there's the first surprise. Your response of faith to God's great love with which He loved you is to love one another. Love one another. So we have a church where we want to see the great love with which the Father has loved us. 
We want to know this. We want to experience it. We want to urge you to not just be satisfied with some distant kind of wishful thinking that maybe God might love you, but to know it. To have it grab you, embrace you, and then be the kind of church that responds to that eternal love of God who is our Father by loving each other. And praise God, the state of our church is often one of responding to needs in our church. You all do it by loving them. Not just in talk, but in actual doing things. It's really wonderful. I want to conclude the sermon with some ways that we can add to that, but please don't hear this sermon as a what is wrong with you people kind of sermon. But thank you. Good work. You're responding to God's love for us with real love for each other, often in many different ways. Thank you. Good work. Keep it up. So our first surprise that we respond to God's love, not here by focusing on our love for God, but the way we respond to God's love by faith is responding by loving his children. Every parent understands this, right? The way you love mom or dad is to love their kids. Mom or dad receive love by you loving their children. You know, this is why we do stuff for the kids here. I mean, we love the kids. We want to love you by loving your kids. So we are to love one another. Now, we see in this text that the opposite of love, kids, in this text, there's an example given of somebody who didn't respond to God's love with loving his brother, but with murder, hatred, hatred. The opposite of love here is seen as hatred, and you have Cain as this crazy example of it. So I found it interesting, surprising, that the response to God's love isn't to love God directly, but to love one another. But here's the second uh, surprise, is how he defines hatred. How he defines hatred. Now, of course, Cain actively hated his brother Abel. He was jealous of his brother's godliness. Any of you siblings like that? You have a sibling who acts better in the household and you don't and you're jealous of their goodness and you complain to your parents, why do you never say to them? Because they act better than you acted. Rather than being jealous, maybe you should like check the plank in your own eye and be better. But parents, this is not in the sermon, but here's a tip. The kids who require more consistent discipline, you're often concerned about what's going to happen to them, but the kid who doesn't require discipline is the one to be more concerned about. So just be careful of that. Because there's often a lot of self-righteousness and I'm better than the rest of my siblings kind of stuff, which is way more dangerous and something that we don't think is dangerous. So anyways, he, he does show hatred as this active, murderous kind of thing, but when he applies it to us, he defines hatred not by like actively doing evil things, but by just not 
responding to the needs of others with deeds. So I, you know, obviously I don't think we have anybody in our church plotting the murder of anybody else. I hope not. But what John defines here in hating these verses is a twist. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer like Cain. Verse 16, he defines love as Christ laying down his life. And then he calls us to, def- to lay down our lives. How? If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. So his definition of hatred here isn't kind of active evil doing against somebody else, but just not doing the good that somebody else's needs require of us. It's more of a passive, inactive response to something that somebody needs rather than an active hatred of them. Does that make sense? Think of marriage here. Of course, we know every marriage depends on love. It is everything. I mean, this is true in friendship and everything else, but marriage, of course, is love. And often before the marriage, Lots of careful attention to the needs of the other is given. Hardly anybody writes poetry after they're married. Before they're married, they're a poet. (laughs) Flowers and thoughtfulness and just lots of deeds done. Here's some. But, you know, after 20 years, sometimes you just coast. And you're no longer as attentive and responsive and thoughtful and careful and you become a bit neglectful. And so marriages often struggle not because of active evil being done to each other, but just passive, unresponsive, not being careful to do little things that communicate love. And John is here calling that hatred. It's like in Proverbs where it says, a refusal to respond to your child's sin with discipline is to set your heart on the death of your child. To do nothing in discipline is hatred, the book of Proverbs says. And what do you always tell yourself when you don't respond to your child's sin with discipline? What do you always tell yourself? I'm being gracious. Look how gracious I am. Sometimes you even tell other parents about it. Little Susie did so-and-so, and I decided little Susie was just having a tough day, and so I took little Susie to get some ice cream. Aren't I gracious like Jesus? And so hatred here is neglecting to serve each other in small daily ways that meet the spiritually, emotional, physical needs of each other. Now, sometimes you can think that you're being loving by not doing bad things. Sometimes men, women typically know that because they're given care of bodies that give life, women are typically more aware of needs that need to be met and they meet them. They don't have to be asked. You see this often in the church. Where men often define love is just by not being a bother. And what 
John is saying here is we need to, to be a bother. <laughs> we need to see needs and meet them. And that's loving. So the second twist, the second surprise is how he defines hatred. It's just not doing the little things to careful, to, to care for each other. And notice how he talks about it in verse 17. Closes his heart. Ugh. So you may see a parent struggling with a rebellious kid. And you know that they could use some help. But, you know, you might get dirty. You don't want to stick your nose in where... And yet you see the struggle right there. And don't we often close our heart? You might see a couple that's cold towards each other. There's, there's these things we see and we're supposed to act. And notice he makes it very tangible. You see, you have the world's goods. You see your brother in need. In verse 18, we're to love in deed and in truth. Costs us some thought, some energy, some time, some emotion, some resource. And what's really striking here, and this isn't the third surprise, but what's really striking here is he talks about that kind of everyday, regular, normal, unremarked vice. He's doing love as something that communicates Christ's sacrifice. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us in verse 16, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. How? By seeing a need and just taking an hour or two to meet it. And he equates that kind of everyday, regular love in the church as likened to Christ's sacrifice. Isn't that wonderful? It reminds me... John or Matthew chapter 25 where Jesus has returned and he's looking at his sheep and he's saying, thank you, when I was thirsty you gave me a drink of water, when I was hungry you fed me, when I was naked you clothed me. And of course our response is, what are you talking about? I, when did I see, I never saw you, first of all, when did I, well, when you saw one of mine and you did it, you did it to me. And so Christ died for us, and our acts of love for each other are like a return that He takes note of and He rewards us incredibly for. And so, of course, what I'm continuing to urge you to do is do what you've been doing and keep doing it. Or some of you who haven't yet looked at each other as an opportunity to love, like get in the game, jump in, it's a lot of fun. So let us love. That's the title of the message. Let us love. Verse 18. Let us not love in word and deed. I'm turning that around. Let us love. So thank God for all the love here. Don't let it grow cold. Uh, Also, take care. Some of you are very different from other people. You have some who are very extroverted, outgoing, very active, visible, And some are very quiet and unassuming and three is too many. You don't care. Three is a big crowd for you. You don't care ever to be seen doing anything ever. And just be careful of evaluating your love by somebody who's different with different gifts and different temperament. And also season of life. 
a young family with little kids is not going to be able to do things here at church that a single person or an empty nester or a 19-year-old can do. It's going to look different. In fact, of course, your love for your children and your spouse, our love for the church. So I'm not here just talking about doing things here. It extends beyond here, of course. Somebody was, after the service, one of the people who walks around during the service and protects us was saying, I, I don't get to worship like everybody else. And I said, bull pucky, your, your love, your worship is keeping us safe. That's worship. That's offered to God as worship. And so don't despise these things that you do. These are good work. Keep doing them. Okay, one of the things I want to urge you to continue to grow in, but I think that are, is an area of greater opportunity is for older saints to involve the younger saints in whatever you do to love each other. We see this in Scripture all over the place. Older men, when you are fixing a toilet here or shoveling a sidewalk or going to help at somebody's house do something, Bring along younger men. Or say, hey, this thing needs to happen to a younger man. Would you get this done? And when they say, I don't know how to do that, say, great. Let's go to Menards and get the stuff and let's do it together. It's, it's a kind of love that is showing the responsibility important for men to handing off the good work that you do and training younger men to do it. Now, I know that that's actually more work often. It's much easier just to come and get it done, right? I struggle with this in my household. It is way easier for me just to go do the chore. Because my kids will say, wow, they suddenly have to like go feed the pigs or something. You know, they come up with all these things that they need to do. I'm like, well, you've been sitting around for the last two hours doing nothing. And now suddenly you got this list of stuff to do. And, you know, you got to put up with that. And then you got to look at them, do it in a way that you would not do it and resist the temptation to micromanage their doing and just let them do it. And then afterwards say, well, you did good, but here's better. And so could you do it again? And then put up with all of that that's going to, you know, and well, I could have got this done much better and much easier. And that's not very loving, is it? And so we got to do that. And of course, in Titus 2, we have this applied directly to older women. To teach younger women what godly womanhood is. To help younger mothers be content at home. To love their husbands. To manage their households. To keep them from getting involved in too many other things because their focus and attention and love needs to be given to give them maybe a time to just go and unplug and you take the kids or you provide a meal. or So that's one area of love that I want us to consider is how do we, who have been here and have taken responsibility, involve younger, newer people here in the work of loving each other? How do you give responsibility to your children here at the church. And so, one way that you can set a great example is just you do it. You love us. 
you take care how you talk about others here. You make church the most prominent, important priority on your calendar. You show affection for the people here. You linger here. And your children will learn to love what you love. The younger, newer saints here will learn to love what you love. Now, the the final and third surprise comes at the end of the text. So the first surprise is our response to God's love isn't to love God, but to love each other. The second is his definition of hate. The third is that this kind of love for each other in verse 19 results in our reassurance that God loves us. It's very surprising. Maybe think of it like this. Often, as I mentioned before, in families you have children that are more compliant and children who aren't. And sometimes you have a really rebellious child and have caused all kinds of chaos and relational disharmony and disunity. And one of the things that you would find surprising is the person who was most unloving in the family often says that they were not loved well in their family. And that the reason that they didn't love their family well is because they weren't loved well. Do you understand what I mean? So they lost confidence in their family's love for them and they thought the root of it was their family when it was just their wickedness in their family. But I've seen when you have people within a family who love each other and do good to each other, have sin, but they deal with it. They're not perfect. They become more reassured of their father's love, of their family's love as they contribute to, in love to their family. The surprising thing is here is the way that you become more reassured and see the kind of love that the father has given to you is by loving his children. The end of the text ends up right back at the beginning of the text. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called His children. Love one another. And you'll be more reassured of the kind of love that the Father has given to us. So in God's family, the way that God has given us to be more reassured of His fatherly acceptance and love and forgiveness of us is to love each other. Isn't that strange? Isn't that odd? Well, let's ask God's help. Father, please give us um, an experience, a greater experience of your love for us, and let us return in faith that by loving your children well, thank you for all of the good deeds of sacrificial love that you have worked in this past year here. We give you praise for it, O God. Thank you that you have given us a church that's loving right now. But help us to be careful to continue that. To not become complacent or um, just coasting in it. But help us to love all the more. Teach us that our love should not grow cold. And so work in us a greater love for each other. Help us, oh God. We need your love, God. Uh, we, we need your kind of love to be for each other. And so, God, please work that in us. Give us the faith for this. Um, Help us to consider the little deeds we do and how they are loving and not think that it's some big grand thing, but just little things. And so, God, we praise you for that. 
and, and give you all the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.